Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of One Vision. With us today is an old friend, um, not physically, biologically old. That's not what we try to mean, but, you know, just a dear friend, Greg uh, Schomburg, managing partner for Westcott, based in Brooklyn, New York, although I think he's temporarily relocated to the beautiful state of New Jersey, a writer for TechCrunch and many other publications, including the one that we are missing dearly, The Financial Revolutionist. So thank you so much for coming on the show today and spending time with us, Greg. Thank you very much for having me um, and um, appreciate you clarifying that. I am not old, even though I don't have any hair. Um, I feel very young and I'm very excited to be here with uh, both you and Brad because you guys are old friends as well. Um, so can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and what exactly are you up to right now? Uh, so in terms of my background, um, I started off as a, um, I guess for lack of a better term, a political guy working um, in campaigns and then on Capitol Hill. Um, and then after that, I became a um, corporate lobbyist for a gigantic energy company. Uh, and then um, uh, after B-School, I became a capital markets banker for 13 years. I took a, um, a sabbatical in the middle of that time to become a, uh, a crisis PR consultant. Uh, but when I ultimately said goodbye to Wall Street about five years ago, I um, have to admit I really didn't have much of a plan. Um, but I was fortunate to fall into fintech first as, a, as an angel investor and advisor and then as a, uh, as a media startup founder with uh, the Financial Revolutionist. Um, I was fortunate enough to, to sell that company about a year and a half ago, and uh, I have been advising CEOs on matters related to strategy and financing and, and innovation uh, since then. So let's talk about that a little bit more. You advise a lot of organizations, um, Neocova based in St. Louis, which we know very well, Core Innovation Capital, Pando, um, several others. So given everything that's going on right now, that's happening in the world since March and beyond and hell, the last four years, let's be honest, what is your advice these days to startup founders? I mean, these are some pretty big companies you're talking to. Yeah, I mean, um, my, my advice is that there is no sort of, you know, one way to approach things. Um, this uh, period that we're in now um, is certainly quite, you know, unprecedented, at least in, in our lifetime. Um, but I don't think that um, it's altogether that surprising when you think about the degree to which um, we have neglected um, many of the most important things that used to, you know, hold society together. Um, as it relates to the companies that, you know, I'm advising, or at least the ones that I'm public on, you mentioned some of them, or most of them, Brad, um, they're all in a, in a great position. Um, and, you know, part of the reason why I chose to, um, you know, affiliate with those companies is because I believe that they are all very good actors trying to um, unscrew one or more of the many big problems we now face. Um, and um, I really meant a different word from unscrew, but I'm sure you can figure out what I meant. 
Yeah, on, on, on that note, yeah, I, I don't know what, what he was trying to talk about, but the world is pretty much unscrewed right now. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we have degraded um, the institutions that used to be the basis of our society. Um, we have um, declared war on science, as far as I'm concerned. We've declared war on a free press. And we have essentially bought into the narrative that poor people deserve to be poor. And so when you think about all of those things, and, you know, if you agree with me on them, you know, you then sit back and you say to yourself, well, what did we expect to happen? Um, did we really think we would be able to go on in perpetuity by sort of sucking off of the fumes that we created uh, during the post-World War II period? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, essentially our, our luck um, has been running out for all the sacrifices that previous generations have put in to make this country great. It's still an amazing country, but, um, you know, I, I think the fabric of our nation is tearing apart. And so when you have a pandemic hit, uh, of course, it's going to be viewed through a political lens. Of course, the poor people are going to be hurt more by it. Of course, people of color are going to be hurt more by it. it, it it's not really surprising when you think about what we have, have done um, through not, not maybe ill will, but through neglect over the last couple of decades, in my view. I hate to be such a, a downer, but, you know, that's kind of the way I see it. It's all right. I think both of us have done a fair share of uh, doom, doom scrolling, if that's mm. even the right term lately. Yeah. <laughs> but let's, let's switch gear a little bit and talk about financial revolutionists. Um, that's yeah. where a lot of us um, have discovered your writing, have found out about you and your thoughts on financial services, technology, and everything else. And I think I can speak on behalf of quite a few of us that we are suffering uh, a withdrawal of, of sorts. You, you got us so conditioned to every Saturday morning open up the laptop and look for that email. What is Greg going to write about? I mean, your, your writing style is distinct and it, it's refreshing. Um, so tell us a little bit more about how that started and, and what path did it lead you down over the years? Um, I'd be happy to. Um, it, um, I'm very proud of it. And thank you for the, for the kind words. Um, it, it started out in part by, by accident, um, born of a frustration I had for the um, sort of, you know, overwhelming rah-rah-ism nonsense that I believed was um, way too common in the, in the fintech press and in the event space at the time. You know, um, the, um, you know there, there, there's this concept of the Russell conjugation, um, which is essentially use of words to put you know, a spin on things. Um, but, you know, a company um, that is um, pivoting to take advantage of a, you know, a tremendous opportunity and a company that is reeling from a miscalculation, you know, that basically means the same thing. But, you know, thanks to sort of the widespread use of Russell conjugation in the tech press, the fintech press, only the positive spin on things was was being you know placed in, in all the things that I read. And I ultimately felt like that was doing a disservice to a very important uh, sector of innovation in the economy. And so when I started writing it, I wanted to essentially you know comment on all of the great stuff I saw out there, um, 
but also, you know, call out nonsense when, when I saw it. And, you know, this idea of sort of calling balls and strikes and not treating everything as a, as a home run was, was sort of at the, at the center of it. And, um, you know, I, I made sure to ignore all of the well-intended advice I got about when I should release the email each and every week and ultimately concluded that, you know, Saturday morning would be a good time to do it. But if you're going to release a newsletter <clears throat> on the weekend, you have to take a different tact than you would if you're going to release a newsletter on a, you know, every Tuesday. And I concluded that people on the weekend, you know, if they're interested in financial innovation, you know, they certainly want to be kind of, you know, kept up to speed on all of the news uh, that's relevant. But, you know, there is a little bit more space to try and entertain, to be whimsical, to throw in some cultural references to, um, you know, really, uh, you know, sort of attack issues more broadly than just fintech. And so I really, you know, enjoyed the challenge each week of trying to figure out how to slip in non-fintech related uh, references and thoughts into a fintech publication. Um, and that increased, I thought, the the likelihood that I would have readers stick with me each and every week. And, um, you know, it was, it was a ridiculous amount of hard work. Um, but, you know, most weeks I I um, I concluded my writing and and felt exhausted, but kind of in a in a in a good way, that I had sort of left it all out on the field each and every week, and so that was that was me. You know, that was I, I sort of reached deep every week to to put out um, a newsletter that I thought hopefully would be would be worthy of of people spending a little bit of their their weekend time with it. So thank thank you for for those kind words. Steve. And it was it was the way that you know I was introduced to you as well. Um, I remember Theo saying you should really be reading this guy. Uh, and when I when I first started reading, I was like, you know, it's not just the business news. It is um, you're, you're sprinkling like a little bit of uh, progressive politics among other things in there, which I liked. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is like you know people that are in this business can't seem to pull themselves out of the fact that we are basically enabling banking payments, all of these financial services, and they don't seem to think that they impact people, that policy somehow doesn't impact people, uh, and that what they do, you know, may not matter to Main Street, but it does. And that's what I always appreciated about um, what you had written about for so many years. And so <clears throat> let's switch gears just a little bit on that, though. And, and some of the things, the longer pieces that you are writing now have been about fallen founders, people like Sofi's, like Cagney, and others that sort of have this falling for different reasons and partly character flaws or partly just the way that they, you know, did not create a good culture and how they came back. Um, so, so why, in, in your, you know, kind of line of thinking, do some entrepreneurs get those second and third chances after they exhibit those major character flaws or they create those toxic cultures? when more sort of underrepresented founders from, you know, whether it's people of color, women, or older demographics, they struggle to get funding in at these guys, these guys that create these sometimes really serious problems, get all these different chances. I mean, what, what's your take on that as you write about folks like this? Um, okay, so I'm going to comment on that. And then if it's okay, I'd like to 
comment also on the thing that you said before about sort of the interplay of, of fintech and, and politics and, and in my writing and, and the financial revolutionist. Um, to your question about um, Mike Cagney, um, who I, I know reasonably well, um, what I would say about Mike is that um, he's, he's brilliant. Um, he's intense. And he's most definitely not a not a snob. Um, you know, um, I'm certainly well aware of some of the challenges that um, that he faced at at SoFi. Um, and you know, I'm aware of the fact that people have have some views on that that um, might be different than than the ones that I have. Um, what what I would say is that. Um, he certainly has put a fair bit of safeguards in place at figure, I think, to protect the culture, to safeguard the culture. Um, what I do have a problem with is the fact that a guy like Mike could get a second chance. And as you said, many people of color and women don't get a second chance. And I think one of the greatest things about America is that, um, you know, it has been historically the land where at least some of us can get second chances. Um, I, of course, like to see all Americans get that opportunity. In the case of Mike, hard, hard to know what would have happened with his attempts to build a, you know, another company were it not for the fact that um, he's just lightning smart. I mean, in the times in which I've, I've spoken to Mike, I find myself furiously taking notes so I can figure out what he was saying later when I have more time to actually piece it together. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt about it being um, somebody who um, is, um, you know, known among sort of the mafia of, of investors and, um, you know, who has his profile is certainly going to have an easier time for that second and maybe third chance than, than others. So, yeah, it, it, it is a real, real big, profound issue. But my view is, you know, we need to give more people second chances, not less people second chances, regardless of their of their race or, um, you know, uh, personal circumstances. Um, on the issue of my sort of wading into politics uh, and policy um, within the financial revolutionist, um, you know, just to kind of let you in on at least a little secret here from my vantage point, if you promise not to tell anybody, um, I think fintech is politics. And um, when you look at all of the policy malware that is affecting our country, um, you know, I think that fintech was in part largely driven by a desire and a market opportunity, frankly, to fix things that in, in previous eras might have been fixed through a public policy context, right? You know, we like to delude ourselves into thinking that an unrestrained free market is the best way to go. I'd argue that, you know, the posture of the FR when I ran it took a very sympathetic view to sort of the Adam Smith worldview, which is that free market competition is ideal, but it has to be fair. And I think that fintech is at its best when it is trying to promote 
greater transparency, which is, uh, you know, in the context of fintech, a, a private sector way to bring about more fairness in the economy. Um, so, and, and by the way, I would add that ESG is sort of the next iteration of that. It is political by nature because, you know, younger people in particular, you know, um, haven't been able to sort of get their message across through the ballot box, in part because young people don't vote too much, but they, they have money and they have chosen to express their views on, on um, various aspects of the way our world is going through how they, you know, allocate their dollars. But it is all very political. We just don't use that word um, because that word has all sorts of connotations that people like to avoid. But, you know, it, it, fintech is very political. ESG is very political. A lot of sectors of the economy at this point, I view from a very political context. So, so it, you know, given that, and given sort of the circumstances of you know, what you used to write about uh, on, on a on a weekly basis and the type of things that you write about now, if, if you were to like interview any particular person and you could have carte blanche and what you could ask them, who would you interview today? Um, I, I, I would like to interview Elon Musk. Um, and I have so far been unsuccessful in my attempts to uh, to speak with him. Um, maybe I got close once or twice. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to interview um, the majority leader of the Senate. Um, I would like to um, interview um, Eric Weinstein, which, uh, in addition to your podcast, uh, he hosts a podcast called The Portal, which I think is excellent. Um, I sometimes listen to your podcast and then I listen to The Portal back to back, and he has so far ignored me as well. Um, but you know, look, I've, I've been I've been really lucky to be able to sit down with a lot of other amazing people like Ray Dalio and um, Brad Katsuyama, who is a star of um, you know uh, the famous Michael Lewis book. Um, you know, I, I have learned a lot from kind of the the one on one um, um, you know sit downs I've I've been able to get with people. But I, I would really like to you know sit down with Musk and. And um, and sort of try to explore why he's so incredibly brilliant on one hand, but often undermines his own brilliance by some of the more immature things that he does. And I and I think that really undermines his ability to be you know credible uh, influence even more so than he is now. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. I think what you just talked about earlier when you said FinTech is political, it reminds me of what Jimmy and Propel has been trying to do, putting $1,000 in the hands of people that need it the most. Essentially, is it's a version of what Andrew Yang and everyone's talking about UBI. We just don't call it that, like you say, because whenever we talk about UBI, it, it somehow linked to socialism, somehow got linked to politics, and everything just goes down the drain. 
Well, Theo, uh, on that note, let me just let me just add, and not not to go down sort of a Chomsky rabbit hole here, um, but we're caught up on language, and and you know, sort of to paraphrase him, it's like asking you know whether or not a submarine can swim. You know, they both move through the water. So what does it matter if it swims or if it propels forward in, in some other way? And we all put so much stock on language without realizing that in, in many respects, I think the language is irrelevant. The concepts last. And, you know, the, the, the use of sort of the word political is one of those things where sort of mainstream people in financial services and business think, well, I'm going to stay away from politics because... You know, I don't want to offend people or lose a client or whatever, but by the very nature of what so many entrepreneurs are doing in fintech, it's it's just political. We just have a have a problem, you know, calling it like it is, I think. Yes, I cannot agree more. Um, so with that being said, um, what grade would you give the fintech ecosystem when it comes to actually helping propel consumer financial well-being. Because looking back, right, and since the last financial crisis, a lot has happened. And one would argue some of the original intent of FinTech as it comes to disrupting financial services industry and and, and all of that sort of has changed and morphed um, in the last 10 years. Yeah, you know, I, I suppose I, I, I would give the sector um, maybe a B minus. Um, too many fintechs, you know, to my way of thinking, are still focused in on on rich folks and affluent folks. And a lot of fintechs are, are focused in on KPIs that, you know, I think are just fundamentally meaningless. I mean, you know, there's a, um, um, a, a famous axiom I, I try to remember called Goodhart's Law. You know, when the measure becomes the target, it ceases to be a good measure. Uh, and, you know, I think to myself, you know, shaving a buck off of CAC, like who gives a shit, right? Um, you know, it's all well and good, but if you're going to resort to Facebook as a way to, you know, uh, reduce your customer acquisition costs a little bit so you can please your VCs, so you can raise another round of financing uh, at a, you know, a nice step up in valuation. I mean, sure, you've you've won the battle, but I, I don't think you're, wi you're winning the war. And um, don't get me wrong, there are a number of fintechs that I think have made fabulous contributions uh, that I am, you know, sort of proud to either be a customer of or have written about or, have, you know, interviewed their CEO. But it's very easy in this day and age for fintech companies and VCs to sort of co-opt the language of missionary zeal and to say we want to be you know, a driving force for good. But, you know, if you're catering to 32-year-old affluent millennials who up till recently lived comfortably in San Francisco and New York, you know, I don't buy it. So, yeah, I mean, FinTech has done some great things in promoting transparency and promoting fairness in uh, increasing access to capital. Um, kudos to um, many FinTech companies for for the good work that they have done there. But the language that many FinTech companies use now almost as sort of a default standard is very, very lofty. And the reason why I give the FinTech sector a B minus is because I don't think they're living up to their rhetoric in general. Uh, 
Um, but, you know, hey, more room for improvement. And my goodness, you know, the world is most definitely better off because we have disruptors uh, out there keeping large financial organizations honest. So um, more to do. And, you know, that's that's part of the interesting thing about the last decade. It's like there's part of me, this sort of optimist that's inside me that uh, I often get made fun of because I think it's a better place. And I think it is becoming a better place given the last few months. Perhaps I'm less of an optimist. But when you when you think about fintechs and you think about these these companies, it's, it's you know, bringing transparency, it's bringing lower fees, it's bringing sort of um, new value propositions to the space. But I always wonder when I talk to a founding team, when we're fortunate to be working with some of these startups, what the motivations are around both the founders and the business model itself. And it just seems like, you know, in tech now, for the first time, just the last couple of years, companies that used to be dislauded about like how amazing they are and like how it's great to work there and all these things like Facebook, right? Um, I can't even imagine sitting down with Zuckerberg and like what kind of conversation that would be because I would try to talk to the person like a human and he just seems like a robot. So when you when you think about you know the the data privacy issues and transparency and the other type of things that we're seeing overall in technology, you know how do we think about uh, what technology can do for good? If we're sitting here worried about, you know, whose tweets should be banned and the kind of stuff like we've seen this past week with, you know, a, a major breach on Twitter, it's like, you know, what's what's really motivating these founders? Do they just look for an exit? What have you seen? You know, I, I've certainly seen some of that. We, I mean, a good start would be to kill this concept of blitz scaling, which I think was introduced really at, at, at the at the worst possible time, like two or three years ago by Reid Hoffman, I forget who the co-founder was, but this idea that you need to grow and grow and grow and let fires fester if it's not the biggest fire at the time and scale and attack. And the mere fact that it was sort of borrowed from a, you know, a, a Nazi um, war technique in World War II, um, you know, I hated it the, the, as soon as I heard the term. And then when I read the the bloody book, I thought to myself, my God, I hope this doesn't infect the minds of too many entrepreneurs. But of course it did. And of course, you know, I think Facebook is probably, and Mark Zuckerberg in particular, sort of the patron saint of, um, of that concept. And um, I think otherwise really great entrepreneurs have been led astray by this idea that it's, you know, scale to the moon or death. And, um, you know, when you, you see that sort of, you know, spread across a, an economy, you get into a dynamic where people ignore negative externalities and, you know, you wind up having situations where, you know, there's no redundancy built into business models, no um, idle cash sitting on the balance sheet for a rainy day and such when a, when a bad day comes, um, you know, the pain is even worse. And, and I think you can, um, you know, just sort of look to the current conditions now for that. Um, so, you know, Brad, it's, it's a, it's a really tricky question and, and it's hard to kind of um, generalize. There are a lot of amazing FinTech companies out there that are, are doing great things. Um, I'm a big fan of the folks at Betterment and for that matter, Wealthfront. 
uh, to take, you know, two cases. Uh, I think Credit Karma is a phenomenal company. Um, Ripple, Brex, PayPal, you know, Lemonade, Klarna. I mean, th- th- there are founders who are are doing amazing things out there to Im- improve the world. And then there are tourists, right? You know, there's, there's this whole concept of um, a entrepreneur, right, who isn't really an entrepreneur, but who sort of acts like one. I think another, um, you know, a substrate of that is just somebody who's in it for a trade, right, and who wants to make a whole bunch of money real quickly and then, you know, go live on an island somewhere. And I think most of the time that that, that doesn't work out. But, you know, in, um, in a market like this where um, there is a huge amount of um, optimism and enthusiasm for where the fintech space can go, um, some people get away with with uh, assuming that attitude and you know completing that trade and you know it's it's perfectly um, allowable for for companies to think that way. Um, but in the long run, the real iconic companies, the the next PayPal's, are going to be the companies that have a long term approach and aren't just in it for the money. In my view. Yeah, and those companies that aren't just sort of copycatting on others. Um, I just I, I I think about the the sheer amount of money that's been raised uh, in this space the last you know three or four years, especially, and the influence of SoftBank and other just monstrous you know billion dollar funds. Uh, and now we we see some of these startups that have even recently taken money as recently as February starting to lay off people, which is just unfathomable to me. So uh, I appreciate that. It's um, it's it's a the beginning of another decade where I think we're going to look back and see that this industry has shifted quite a bit more just because of what's happening right now. Look, I mean, I, I um, even though I'm not old, I am old enough to remember the um, the last bubble bursting. And the real shame of it was that, you know, there were a lot of nonsense companies that were put out of existence, um, you know, once the bubble popped. But there were some good companies and good, you know, teams that got caught in the wave. And, you know, that's the way things happen when the sentiment moves in the negative in the other direction. I was a capital markets banker at the time. You know, um, pe- people didn't even want to buy Amazon shares. Right. Amazon was, you know, I, I, around a buck. Uh, and yet it was clear even back then that Bezos was a, a singular entrepreneur. But you know, it's really hard to fight the waves. So right now, um, you know, we're, we're all sort of looking and saying, we're not sure how long this, this will last. Uh, tough to know. I mean, I, I sold the FR uh, a little bit prematurely, I think, in retrospect, because I didn't want to be tethered to a sector as a derivative of that sector, a media company, um, when the sentiment moved in the other direction, because I knew, um, you know, it would be very, very difficult to have any kind of exit at that point. So, um, my timing wasn't ideal, but, you know, I I have been, I am a long-term bull on FinTech, but over the short and intermediate term, I am much more cautious because I don't like a lot of the things I'm, I'm seeing out there. Um, too much of the growth, too much of the optimism is being pulled forward into valuations 
because we are awash in liquidity thanks to any number of factors, including very low interest rates and the like. And um, over the long term, that will have a negative impact on returns for the VCs who give companies these valuations. And, you know, giving an early stage company an incredibly high valuation before they have really earned it, you are doing a disservice to that company over the long term because they are going to have to wind up doing stupid things in order to try to justify their valuation. And usually they don't work out so well. So before we wrap up, um, I know none of us have a crystal ball and we can't even begin to think about what's going to happen next week <laughs> rather than like a, a year from now or uh, for election for all that worth. But I'm curious to see what are your thoughts on election cycle, the pandemic, future of cities? Um, where do you think things are headed? Um, do we have reason to be optimistic? So sometimes I think to myself, um, I hope the robots win, right? Because we have done such a terrible job of allowing our own human biases to get in the way of progress. Uh, and maybe an unsupervised AI program, you know, tasked with maximizing human potential would, would do a better job than, than humans. Um, other times, I think to myself that the arc of history is still bent in a favorable direction, especially if we can make sure that software is the servant and not the master of our future. So software as a servant sounds pretty good to me. And, um, you know, maybe we'll get there. I, I look at the world like a like an options trader in, in some ways. And, you know, I believe that we are going to have a dramatic move in one direction or the other over the course of the next few years. Um, you can put on something called a long straddle, um, which is when an investor buys an out-of-the-money call and an out-of-the-money put simultaneously so they can win as long as the move is dramatic in one direction or another. And so I thought to myself, you know, right now, if there were options listed on the future of, of our country and our, and our world, I, I would probably put on a long straddle. Um, but to su suffice to say, I'd be happy to lose my money on the put. And, um, you know, as it relates to the, um, the, the future of cities, um, I, you know, have been doing a lot of thinking about this issue. And um, I absolutely positively believe that cities will be back and better than ever in no more than five years time for um, two reasons. Um, and I think they are very much, um, you know, indicative of, of, of our humanity. Um, first reason, um, cities offer unparalleled opportunity and density of opportunity. And, you know, you mentioned at the at the onset of the uh, of the podcast. I am currently in Princeton. It is a wonderful place, um, but when it comes to that stage in life, when people want to maximize their opportunities, I believe that over time, particularly as you know, we hopefully mitigate the risks of of COVID, people will still be willing to undertake a certain amount of of health risk. Um, to be in cities because that's where the, the most opportunities are. I think the other reason 
um, is uh, something that we don't talk a lot about, but I happen to think it's true. I, I think it's sex and companionship. You know, unless the human mind gets rewired during this pandemic, um, you know, people are still going to um, seek out one another for romance, for coupling, for, you know, less uh, long-term relationships. Um, and there is no better place to go to than cities for that, you know. Um, sex and companionship in cities go together like, you know, Watson and Crick or Rick and Morty or any other duo you want to say. So, you know, like capitalism, cities always figure out a way to reinvent itself. And New York and Chicago and San Francisco and all of these cities right now that are really going through a hard time and are dealing with all of the uncertainties associated with the school systems and budgetary problems. Yeah, they're going to be a couple of rough years, but five years from now, um, you know, I, I just think that uh, cities will have been reinvented in a more constructive, safer way. And in, in many respects, probably will be even better as a result of that. So um, if I could buy an option on New York City, I, I would probably do that as well. Hey, you don't have to convince us. Uh, I think we both love the Big Apple and uh, for, for, for many reasons. But uh, anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. And I love that we actually ended with a more positive note since we started with Doomsday Thoughts. But um, thank you again, Greg, for joining us today. And thank you so much for listening in to another episode of One Vision. Thank you.